Listen to ordinary people who lead extraordinary lives. Their leadership styles forever impressed in the hearts and minds of people, be it in their professions, personal life, and or in communities by being an example of greatness. Be inspired by these personal stories and prepare to be both moved and motivated as Maurice Manley II, the serial entrepreneur, interviews present and future icons. Challenge yourself to recognize the leader that lives within so that you may continue to grow and experience amazing things in life. We are all capable of leadership. Take charge and lead up. You are listening to episode number 28, Life is Guided by Passion. Prepare to be realigned as you hear from reporter, history buff, and award-winning producer, Bonnie Boswell. Bonnie shares how she has been able to move through her struggles and how she has reached a level of peace and happiness in her life with just a change of perspective. I proudly introduce to you, Bonnie Boswell. Welcome back to another episode of Lead Up. Very special guest today, Miss Bonnie Boswell. She is a reporter, producer, award-winning, um, I guess, reporter and producer for the Seeds of Peace. Yes. Uh, documentary, or not that, was it a documentary it was, or a series? Well, it was a documentary. It was, it was an hour special on NBC. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um history buff this this woman is so full of information comes from a legacy of uh historical civil rights movers and shakers and leaders um there's so much wisdom and and power here in front of me uh and i have so many things to talk to you about but for the sake of time i'll try to minimize it I want to start by asking you at, because I watched your TED talk that you did. Um, I believe it was entitled The Rock. Remind me. The, the, I'll have to remind myself. It was The Rock, a river, <laughs> the, 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 and something else. Like yeah, it was a while ago. Dealing with the connective <laughs> yeah, tissue you. between, you know, us human beings. Exactly. And uh, relevancy. And so at what point in your life did you realize that? this connective tissue that exists between all human beings was so important and so vital? Well, I have to say, I I think like most of us, I had a sense that we were all connected. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. kind of implicit that we're sharing the same space and, you know, we're walking around with two eyes, two ears, a nose. Mm -hmm. There's, there's, we have a lot of similarities, but obviously there's a lot lot of differences. So I think we all kind of understand that, but I don't think we understand how deep that connection is. Correct. We understand it at a kind of a surface level, Mm -hmm. but to really understand the inseparability of person and environment is a concept I actually learned in Buddhism, which means just that, you know, that we are so intimately connected to our environment that when we change ourself, then our environment changes. Mm. So rather than worrying about fixing the environment, which is what we often do in our families, our communities, and so on, but we work to change some aspect of ourself. And that, by its very definition, shifts what's going on around us. Now, has there been any evidence of, and I'm just playing devil's advocate, has there been any evidence in history that, as a collective, that that has actually worked? Well, yeah. I, I know at an individual level, mm-hmm. you know, I can walk into a room and I can kind of check my temperature and kind of affect the people around me. But globally, um, have, have we seen that before? Yes, I think so all the time. I don't know that we actually have defined it like that. But I think, for example, talking about 
African-American history. I think mm-hmm. those of us who've survived the Middle Passage have done it all the time. Okay. Our family, we wouldn't be here had we not learned how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the stories that I told in the film I did about my uncle, my uncle was, a, as you mentioned, a civil rights leader, Whitney M. Young Jr. Yes. And um, he grew up in the South in segregation. And so it was a very hostile world, very hostile. Mm-hmm. And when he was a young man, um, he was going to... Uh, finished a, ba- a bas- basketball game and uh, he was celebrating with his team and he went to a store and they told the manager told the boys you know you guys can't eat here you have to eat out and back and he was so angry furious he went back and told my grandfather mm-hmm. and my grandfather said son don't get mad get smart so what the lesson there was which is what all black people who survived at that point had to learn is that you couldn't let your environment control you. You couldn't let your emotions control you. Yeah. You had to shift in that moment and get smarter mm-hmm. or else you got dead. That was the only choice, right. right? Right. So you had to, you know, lift yourself up and really, you know, have a, a deeper sense of respect for your own life and not get shaken. And yeah. so just that point alone was something that I know allowed my grandfather to build a high school for 400 kids every year that for 40 years produced capable, qualified people, you know, so he was changing his environment. Uncle Whitney did the same thing in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. When people said well, if more Negroes were like you, we wouldn't have any problem. Yeah. Some of the CEOs of these major companies that had not had a relationship with the civil rights movement. Right. And he was there as a mediator. And when they said something is you know, off-putting is that, he didn't get mad. And so somebody said, well, Whitney, if more Negroes were like you, we wouldn't have any problem. And he said, yes, and if more white people were like me, we wouldn't have any problem. Right. Right? So he didn't miss a beat in terms of anger, which yes. could have happened. Yes. So I think we see that anybody who is successful encounters resistance mm-hmm. if they're moving forward in a humanistic way. Right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the nature of the thing. Right, you know? right. It's the nature of life itself, actually. I agree. It's not so different. I mean, you think of being born. That's not an easy path, mm-hmm. right? That, that is a push. It's a difficult thing or a seed coming up. You know, it's hard. So that is the push and pull of life. So I think it's about really understanding that and really knowing that there's victory on the other side. Yes. So I think we've done it. We can do it individually. I know I've done it in my own life. I can see we've mm-hmm. done it collectively. And I think winning ultimately means that we learn that you know, the more we do that, you know, then the more successful we become as a species. So how do we um, get a grip of, as you mentioned, the, the emotions? Because that, that tends to interfere with progress. Completely. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> I think... I think for me, and again, I've learned this through my practice of Buddhism, which talks about respecting the dignity of every single life Mm. without fail, no matter who it is, to respect the basic dignity of their life. Doesn't mean you agree with them, doesn't mean you like what they do, and doesn't mean you shouldn't say what you need to say to them, but it's respect for the dignity of their life. And what happens is when you do that, then you're not judging people. That's where the, the emotions go haywire through judgment through judgment right because we're very quick to go oh well that person isn't and we denigrate them Uh right that that denigration you know is the cause for you know chaos ultimately and separation where we think oh we're better than them or they don't know what they're talking about or whatever we put them in another category right and we dehumanize them Mm -hmm. even though we're quote right Whatever that is. Yeah, whatever that is. You know, we get, we get even those who, you know, maybe thinking of themselves as being on the right side of things. Still, if we denigrate mm-hmm. another human being, we have lost our personal power and, and respect. And it's respect for the other person that ultimately leads them to shift back. Would it be safe to say through the labeling and the judgment, you're, you're imposing limitations on another person or, or a thing for that matter. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're boxing them in. You're boxing them in, and you're also, I think, really uh, minimizing mm-hmm. your relationship with that person. I have an mm-hmm. example of that. Okay. I had bo- I had bosses periodically that I was just like, you know, I was very 
you know, frisky and vigorous young woman <laughs> coming along in the radio, I mean, the television business. And so, you know, it was, a, it was a crazy business. So anyway, I had different bosses along the way who would make me this, you know, like I just had a hard time with them. But, you know, once I realized I was basically not respecting their, not respecting their life mm. as human beings, I took responsibility and I shifted that attitude. I said, you know, I may not be that person's best friend mm-hmm. or whatever, but I have to respect that person's life. I have to care about that person as a human being. Yeah. And when I did that, in two cases in particular, three cases, actually, the relationships changed entirely. I mean, mm-hmm. within the day. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but in each of those cases, those people who I thought otherwise would have given me difficulty became the people that protected me. Right. In the corporate structure. And I would imagine that in that moment, you personally felt a sense of empowerment. Yes. I'm sure. I, Even I, without seeing the result of that upset action. Absolutely. Well, I had, to, you know, it's like when you recognize that negativity in your own life, you just have to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, it, it, it's dehumanizing to yourself, ultimately. And it's much better to be able to respect people in your environment. And I tell you, one day I had this situation when I was back in New York and um, I was on the righteous side of a particular issue. Anybody would say, yeah, she's with the good guys. And my boss had taken a position which was counter to that. And anyway, it was, it was a bit of a conflict, but I recognized, and he was really kind of lashing back at me. And I thought, oh, this guy's so wrong, right? He was just wrong. And then anyway, I got, I got some encouragement to kind of think about this in a different way. And with that self-reflection that I had to do, I realized that basically in my heart, I really disrespected him. Mm. And that's what he was responding to. It was not the situation, the, the surface, yeah, surface yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff. It's what I felt toward him as a human being. And that was the cause I was making that yielded the effect uh-huh. of the pushback. So when, when I, once I recognized that, I said, I will... I, if I ever recognize this in myself again, I will determine to never have that feeling about any other human being, period. Mm-hmm. And so I went in the next day and he told me, he said, all I wanted to do was communicate with you. He, he, I didn't say a word to him. He said, all I wanted to do was communicate with you. He said, and then about three weeks later, he, he was asked, I was applying for a job at 2020 and he, uh, somebody asked him, how, how is she, you know, how, how she do? He said, on a scale of one to 10, she's a 12. Wow. Now I'm telling you, just given my raw emotions, that would not have been the case. Yeah. <laughs> I've been very happy to be right and go on, sashay out, and that would have been it. Yeah. You but know? I think a lot of us have responded in that matter, and this is an important conversation to have because I 100% agree with you, and I always try to uh, find ways or methods or tools to, to give to people to help them manage their uh, emotions because one thing that I've realized is emotions as I mentioned earlier, become a stumbling block. But also, more importantly, emotions, we make them up in our mind. They're based based off of our thoughts. They're never predicated on what a person actually does or says. It's what we think about what they say or do that causes us to flip out or sachet or (laughs) feel a certain kind of way. Right. And, um, yeah, so in your opinion, just one more thing regarding this, what can people do to inspect in the moment and detect that this negative uh, presence and or energy is within me? And then after recognizing it, how can they remove it? I think it's important to take a step back when you're in a situation, mm-hmm. when, you, when you realize your emotions are controlling you and take a step back. And say, kind of have an axiom for your own life, which is, you know, I am not going to disrespect anybody, period. And you find yourself disrespecting that person, whoever that is, you know, take another look at that and go, no, this is not okay. This is not okay. And I will be the one to shift myself just so that, again, I respect the dignity of this life in front of me. Yeah. Something that we all share. We are all human beings. We are all connected. Even though we're all distinct, we all share the gift of life. Mm-hmm. 
And more importantly, we are in each other's presence. That's not an accident. No. That is not an accident, right? So we have relationship with people. In fact, they say if you're on a bus, you know, your DNA is related to everybody on that bus. Right. You know? Right. So it's on every single level. So I think, you know, to recognize, first of all, have an axiom for your own life, you know, in terms of I will respect the dignity of every life, period. And then when you find yourself deviating from that, you know, check yourself and go back into there, you know, after self, deep self-reflection and really try to respect the person's life. And then you can have the conversation. You can say, you know, I need you to know that this really hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. It's just what you need to do to respect their life yeah. and to respect your life. Yes. Right. Yes. You don't have to have the conclusion, but you need to communicate honestly. Right. Right. So I think that's kind of a thumbnail. Okay. When you produced and, and um, put together the power broker um, about your uncle, what was the most challenging aspect of doing that project? Raising the money. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt. Hands down. Absolutely. Because I'd, I'd never worked as an independent producer before. Okay. I'd always worked within a corporation. So I had done the Seeds of Peace, for example, when I was at uh, KNBC here in Los Angeles. And all I had to do essentially was to get my boss to agree to it, to sign off on it. And then the wheels of the corporation <clears throat> put into play so that I have the cameraman, I have you know, the money, whatever. Yeah, that yeah, could yeah. happen. So I could do it very quickly. I did it in three months. But doing the same length program uh-huh. um, as a documentary took years, years. Just How many years? Well, the conception was, was 10 years, but actually like beginning, which is not unusual, I have found, by the way. Okay. Uh, because it t- costs like half a million dollars. Mm. Yeah. So um, anyway, and but particularly because I had to do a lot of historical footage, you know, if you buy, if you have one shot, for example... Uh, of historical footage that's going to cost you like you know at a discount two two fifty maybe actual prices like four hundred dollars you know like Jeez. two minutes of you know f- of news footage will cost you a couple two thousand dollars I mean it's a two lot. minutes yeah wow yeah so how'd you overcome that I just kept asking I kept le- I learning how- I learned how to be a fundraiser it was not easy and my husband would and I would practice like me asking for money because I just couldn't bring my mouth to say it. <laughs> yes, I need a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, huh? <laughs> you know, I just couldn't put it. So I just would practice it. You know, so that was absolutely the hardest part of it. Okay, hands down. But um, other than that, it was. I mean, we had other things too. You know, I had to really find because he was my uncle. It was really hard finding the right position on it mm-hmm. because I was encouraged initially to tell tell from my point of view as you know his niece who was alive and well when he was doing all these incredible things. And so my bird's eye view as a, you know, young person of him yeah. would have been interesting and different, but he wasn't well known enough actually to mm. the general public for that to make, make it, it, I would have to tell his story and my story. It's just too complicated, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had to kind of redo that. And so my son, Taylor Hamilton came along and kind of saved the day. He kind of said, mom, I can help you with this, which he did. It was great. And he also provided a perspective as, as a younger person that I was with assumptions that I had of things that people should know or did know. Mm-hmm. He didn't know anything about it. It's like, well, tell me about that. And so, you know, right. gave us a, a richness do you, do you think that difficulty as it relates to raising money was present because, as you said, he wasn't that well known? Like, had he been a, like a highly esteemed public figure, household name, do you think it would have been easier to get the money? Yeah, probably so. I mean, he was he was well known in certain circles, but yeah. as you said, he was not a household name. Right. So that made it more difficult. And also, I was new; I'd never raised that kind of money before. I hated selling Girl Scout cookies, you know. So <laughs> I had to do a half a million dollars. Like I don't think so. I couldn't call him, Daddy. Could you buy that? No, I just yeah. You know, so it was not my it was not my forte. I was waiting to deep water. <laughs> now, since you were you you come from a, a family or a legacy of of leaders. Did you ever have self-inflicted pressure to be a leader yourself? Yes. 
is a short answer. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes, absolutely. Which, of course, I rebelled against at every corner. You know, just, just really whatever. Yeah, but I did follow it too. At the same time, I was rebelling. I was doing it. I was mm-hmm. becoming a leader in you know my high school and you know college and various things like did that. Did you find once you gave into that? Um, that things began became easier for you going down that path? Yes, or? yes, absolutely. You know, being a rebel, even though I still, I still um, evaluate things and don't look at things just um, as they are. I evaluate them to see if it makes sense. But I do think I have a passion, mm-hmm. and so I think when I go with my passion, whatever that is or however that manifests itself, I feel more comfortable because it's coming from my heart. And just pushing back against something, again, just in terms of negativity, pushing back against yeah. is a no-win ultimately because it just leaves you feeling unhappy and frustrated, you know, because you're looking outside of yourself for the solution. Why don't they do this kind of thing? But did you, did you recognize that at a young age? No, not at all. No. Right, right. No. So I'm sure you were flying off with, oh, with yeah. your emotions and totally. Your Absolutely, opinion. I was. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what would you say has, has changed besides the obvious um, since the civil rights? And when I say obvious, like voting, um, integration, um, you know, uh, African Americans' ability to earn and make money. Besides those things, what has changed? Well, I think um, I think that the world is getting smaller, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what. People are traveling more for better or for worse reasons, but there's still, you know, really an understanding that, you know, some of the same motivations, people move to different countries for the betterment of their families and so on and so forth. So that's still continuing. But because of that, because we have a more diverse society, period, mm-hmm. no matter what, then I think that opens up doorways. And also I think the technology, the ability to get to people you know, that we have right now with Barack Obama, for example, his success of being able to use technology to really get his message out, um, that's changed. Um, so there, there been, there's definitely been progress, um, but it's frustrating because you would like it to be a lot more than it is. Right. You know, uh, we need to be doing a much better job than we are across the board. The most basic of things, and yes. that is something that I think we all have to really take seriously. Mm-hmm. And wherever we find ourselves, you know, whatever town, village, you know, situation, to really say, you know, can we do better at this? Why do you think that's such a challenge? Um, well, I feel like most people don't think they can do anything about their situation. I think they're, it's easy to give in. To helplessness. Pass. Yes, helplessness. Because they're kind of waiting for somebody, something yes. out there to save them, right? And that's a passive position. So, yeah. you, you know, you have to say, okay, well, I want to... Would you say that stems from um, fear or laziness? Um, I don't think... Not it, wanting to... Do the work, like roll your sleeves up and pound the pavement. I think it's teaching. I don't think it's a fear, particularly. It might be some fear, but I don't think it's laziness. I don't think it's not wanting to do. Okay. Uh, but I think people don't maybe have a perspective about the infinite potential of their life. Hmm. I don't think people really understand that whatever's in the universe is inside of their own life. Yeah. And to pull that power out is what we all have the ability to do. Yes, I, I totally agree. But I ask that because, you know, doing um, these shows, there's so many different perspectives. There's, there's tons of opinions. And a lot of people I have found are truly afraid of success. They're afraid of going and pushing themselves to that, to that next level because they've never been. It's unknown. They've, they may not have seen it in their life. And I'm just finding more and more that fear is really prevalent in the minds of, especially our people. And there are moments when I don't necessarily know how to uh, penetrate their heart or their mind to get them to see what you just said about the unlimited potential. But 
I do know and understand that that can be very intimidating for a lot, which is so this is why I'm, I'm asking like, what, what is it? Is it just from your experience and, and your studies, is it really just not knowing the potential or is it something a little bit more than that? Because we have examples of people, you know, such as yourself and your uncle and other movers and shakers in the world, whether it be present or in history. And we see the, the great things that they have done and what they have overcome. But yet and still, collectively, there's this um, hesitancy. Well, I think we need to tell the story of people behind the scene, number one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one reason I told the story about my uncle. That was kind of the main reason I told about his story. It was because he was not a household name. And so within his peer group, he was behind the scene and not as well known. But it's often the people who are behind the scene who get a lot of the work done. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to value that. I think that's number one. And to realize that if we're born into this universe... At this time, we have a mission. Yes. Every one of us that only we can do. And wherever that place is that we find ourselves, whether it's in our local block club, whether it's in our schools that our kids go to, wherever that is, we have a mission. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a particular eye that they can see things from that nobody else can see. Correct. And they have to be able to value that and know they are in that space, in that time, so that their voice can be heard. Sounds like, um, to, to kind of summarize that, we have to come to a, a, a place where we just trust ourselves. Yeah, absolutely, and I think having a, you know, having a sense of mission is really important. Mm -hmm. Because it's kind of bigger than your, your particular moment at that time. Yeah, I think it yeah. helps you go further. It's like being on a basketball team or something. You know, yeah. you do things that are extraordinary that you wouldn't necessarily do just on your mm -hmm. own, right? And, and so I think as human beings, we have this capacity, but we don't always pull it up until we're given a lofty mission that we can connect to. And I think creating a society that is really generous and capable and creative and mm -hmm. life-sustaining is a mission that we all have. And I think when we connect to our mission and our personal development in connection to that mission, then we find a strength that is there and dormant that comes alive, just yeah. like the mom pulling the truck off her kid. You know, right. I'd never done a documentary, especially, you know, at the time when I did the Seeds of Peace, I'd never done a documentary mm -hmm. like that ever. I mean, I was just like, I would, but I was upset about what had happened at Columbine. I was right. furious, right. you know, my, actually my anger drives me most of the time. That's <laughs> honestly my emotion. So I was like, what am I going to, this is crazy. You know, yeah, this is yeah, nuts. Yeah, yeah. And plus they were blaming the kids essentially, right? They mm. were like doubling down on the kids as opposed to the culture of violence. Yes. And I was like, uh-uh. So I asked my boss, the general manager and, um, of the station that I was working at, uh, KNBC, and he said, do it. I'm like, really? Oh, my God. What am I going to do? <laughs> I was freaking out. I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. But I just started you know, walking down that road, you know, yeah, yeah. because I, I wanted to send a message yes. of hope. Yes. And, the, and you said something I think is very poignant, the emotion that you had was your driving force. Yeah. And even in light of recent events, um, I'm sure you've heard the whole Nipsey hustle. Yes. Um, I'm seeing, in addition to the outcry and, and the sadness, but as a unit, we are mobilizing. We are coming together because of the emotion. Mm -hmm. And I've looked at the situation from a lot of different angles. A month ago, we weren't mobilizing like that. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't marching down the street in droves, um, coming together. We weren't surrounding him as we should have when he was alive. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to do that more with the people that are in front of us that are here living right now. Let's celebrate them. Let's honor them and, and give them their just doing respect and not when they pass away. But I do understand, as you just said, the anger that you had 
and saying, you know what, this is not right. I need to expose this culture. It's not the kids, it's not the children. But had that event not happened, that emotion doesn't exist, you probably don't, you know, do that work. Exactly, exactly. So it's this... Yeah, Just give no. and take of. yeah, I think, you know, whatever motivates you, I mean, and people are motivated by different things that happen, things that happen in their families mm-hmm. can be motivating factors, um, or their communities, whatever it is. But I think, you know, to be able to turn that again, that raw emotion of anger into something constructive, that right. tends to be, I don't know how other people operate, but that's, you know, the situation with infant mortality in the United States is an outrage. Mm-hmm. It is an outrage. You know, that's my next you know, attack, you know, climate, climate change. Yes. Hello. I mean, there's just so many things, you yeah. know, that we yeah. need to do. Not everybody can do all of them, but we can do, everybody can do something. Yeah. And so we have to find that something because that something gives purpose to our life. Mm-hmm. And that enhances, you know, our character. Yeah. And that encourages others. So mm-hmm. it's good for us because we rise to our better self. Mm-hmm. And it's good for the society we live in. We we can't we can't you can't have flowers that are growing out of poisoned earth. Right. You know, we're connected. Yeah. Yes. And so we have to find a way to make that earth clean mm-hmm. and green, right? It's connected to the flowers, yeah. not different. Right. It's a complete total ecosystem. Exactly. There's a phrase that when pine trees flourish, oaks rejoice. Even grass and trees are so closely related. Mm. When pine trees flourish, oaks rejoice. Oaks rejoice. I like that. Out of all of your endeavors, um, which experience guided you the most? When when you say endeavors, at what point? Just all of your um, projects, um, creative things that everything that you've done. Whether it was the the producing of Power Broker or Seeds of Peace or your reporting or your um, your various talks, just out of all your your body of work, what has guided you the most? Well, I think it's the same thing for all of them. These are just kind of different formats mm-hmm. for the same thing. It's kind of what I've been talking about. Is my passion, you know, guides me. My anger at injustice guides me. <laughs> um, my my passion for human beings and life. Yeah. I think life is fantastic. It's amazing. I was having to watch uh, the March of the Penguins the other day. It was on HBO briefly. Uh-huh. I was like, these these guys are you know they're doing incredible things. They're walking you know all that way and they're coming <laughs> together. Back together. It's like <laughs> what you know and the birds that fly that migrate. You know that the, the yeah. movie about the bird migration. I mean, this is awesome. It's amazing. We, and we just recently witnessed it in 2019 with this butterfly. Mm. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to see it, but the migration from Mexico to Oregon. Oh. And it was over a billion butterflies. I didn't see that. Yeah. And for days, wow. weeks, actually. Yeah. Just all following the same path. Yeah. It's incredible. Somebody says, you know, birds fly in paths that humans cannot see. Right? Mm. So I that's what... I love, I love to celebrate that. I'm awed by that. And when anything infringes upon that or acts counter to that, then I want to, I want to do something about it. That's it. And whatever format I can find to do that, whether it's a Ted talk or a documentary or Bonnie Boswell reports or whatever, you know, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. where I'm going. I do one thing I do try to do is present an issue that I'm concerned about, but also a solution at the same time. Okay. Because I never want to overwhelm people and you know right, make them right. like, oh my god, you know, put my covers over my head, you know. Yeah. But like, what can we do? Who's do, who's doing good work around this? Let's celebrate that. Okay. But to tell people so they get information, we have to have information. Uh, I, I agree. And we do not have enough of it, even in the best. You know, journalism, you know, we're only getting what's kind of leading the day. Yeah, sound bites. As opposed to, you know, again, this thing on infant mortality in the United States is a crime. It is Mm. an absolute crime. The good news is that some great things are happening in California about it, with with that issue. So I've done two stories recently to celebrate the work of 
people in, in the state of California to make that a better situation. But it's something we should all be upset about. So point is that, you know, just letting people know about that yeah. until it's resolved. Yeah. I hope this question isn't uh, a repeat, but I'm going to just ask it because it, it may come off differently. What relevance should we be striving for? Well, I'm not sure that, for me, the word relevance quite covers it exactly. Um, I think people should be striving to be happy. Mm -hmm. I think that's what all people want. Yeah, ultimately. That's what what drives people, is how can I be happy? How can I have a harmonious family? How can I have enough food to eat? How can I be healthy? How can I get along with my neighbors? Mm -hmm. You know, the basics of life. And so this happiness will make us relevant? Well, I think that it's connected. Relevance seems a little bit academic. Okay. Um, I think, you know, if you boil everything down to the human level, I think we get closer to the truth of things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what's good for society is good for the human being, yes. right? And what's good for the human being is good for society. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the truth of it, right? So it's all relevant mm-hmm. in that sense. We just have to build the connection between the two. Right. So if we have the microcosm of the macrocosm, mm-hmm. if we can identify these stumbling blocks in our own life, whether it's our insecurities or angers or whatever that stuff is... You know, and challenge it and work to get rid of those shortcomings, mm-hmm. our fears and so forth. Then we change it not just for ourselves, we change it for all the people we are connected to, mm. which is a lot of people. Right. Could be standing in the line in the grocery store and not getting angry at somebody yeah. for whatever, you know, or just yeah. treating somebody with kindness that ordinarily you wouldn't think of, whatever. You know, it's like, and then of course to your family and your community and so mm. on. Right. So I think it's how we, you know, respect our life. Yes. Yes. How do we get out of our own way? Well, um, again, I think we need a, a um, kind of guiding light, if you will, a, a test for ourselves. And again, I think respecting our own life, the dignity of ourselves and others. When you say a test for ourselves, what do you mean by that? Well, again, a stand, like a standard. Right. So, okay. for, so for me, again, the standard is, am I respecting the person in front of me? Mm-hmm. That's my standard of how I want to be in the world, to respect the person in front of me. And to the extent that I'm not doing that, that's what I have to work on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So even if a person is respecting the person in front of them, but maybe they're not getting to that unlimited potential that we just talked about in their personal life because of whatever stumbling blocks that they have or how they perceive themselves, how do they kind of sidestep that so that they can access this uh, potential? You have to go through it. You can't sidestep it. It's the way you get there is by confronting your own weaknesses. Mm -hmm. That's how the journey happens. It's like the butterfly has to go through the cocoon stage in mm. order to become the butterfly. If you cut open the cocoon, the butterfly dies. Yes. Right? So we have to change how we look at struggle, Right. too. We can't run away from struggle, right? And then be waiting to be saved, right? It's mm. not there. There's no mm-hmm. place. There's nothing going to save us that's out there in the universe that's not already inside each one of our lives. So glad you said that. It's very true. So when, so when we have, take a different perspective on hardship, then we can win. Mm-hmm. Because there's no difficulty that doesn't have a positive aspect to it. Yeah. There's something we can learn from it. Our tendency is to run away, flight, right? Fight yeah. or flight, right? But rather than doing that, if we look at that situation with intention and responsibility... I'm taking total responsibility for this relationship. 
for this search situation, for these, this circumstance. Mm-hmm. And just with that sense of responsibility, that's when you begin to open up the unlimited potential of your life mm. because you want to break through. And that creates a rippling effect yes. to your environment. Yeah. And so when, when I was doing this other story and, you know, the guy who was my immediate boss was like personality wise so different than me. They were, he was yelling and screaming. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is person type that I would run in the other direction from. Right. As soon as I felt myself trying to do that, I said, uh, this is going to be your new best friend. I stopped myself. And you ran to it. I said, I'm not, he's going to be my new best friend. I made that decision. And then I really just looked deep in my life to really honor him just as a human being. I still didn't like some of the things he did, Mm -hmm. but just in terms of me not pulling away and judging him and putting up the barrier. Right. I said, he's going, and he became my new best friend. He was the one who said, let her do it. Let her do it. Let her do it. Mm -hmm. You know, how has leadership evolved from the fifties and sixties to now? Mm. Well, I think the good news is it's a, uh, it's a bigger tent, you know, so that you have, because of technology, you have more people who can do it. They can start their own podcast for goodness sakes. You know what I'm saying? You don't (laughs) have to go through NBC. You can do your your own thing. Right. So I think the technology has opened up a lot. I mean, some of that can be negative too, depending on what's (laughs) being said, but at least it opens opportunity more. Um, so I think that in that sense, that that has changed. Um, but I think, you know, our notions of leadership have to be more um, humanistic, more because everybody's a leader in some respects. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be like the showbiz, you know, kind of thing of somebody external. Right. Right. Because that's how, that's a definition of leadership that I think is too narrow yeah. for what we need to be about. Yeah. You know, so it's the nurse who's working at the NICU who's, you know, seeing something happening, you know. They're, that's that's their that's their world. They can you know have a great service there. I agree, and, th- and that's why I created this podcast. And you know, with the title "Lead Up," is to uh, remind all of us that we are leaders. And a, a lot of people think that being a leader is a destination or is is someone that is bigger than who they are. And, and when I say bigger, in terms of just their life. Uh, position you know they'll look at barack and oh yeah he's a leader or malcolm x that's a leader or the ceo of a company yeah he's a leader well what about you oh no i'm not i'm I'm just i just work in a hospital and i want us to push past that internal narrative and recognize that no we are all as you said leaders from whatever position in life that we're in so I'm, i'm very happy that you just made that point and presented it so eloquently. Well, I believe it. <laughs> and, and, and so on that, on the heels of that, in what ways can leadership be cultivated? Hmm. Well, I think you have to try to align yourself with like-minded people who have a similar kind of vision and position, you know, uh, and build concentric circles of that, when I say that, I mean people who have a sense of um, wanting to create a more peaceful world. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important value to look for and share. Find people who are like-minded in that way. Yeah, I think that can be very encouraging, um, and that leads to other people. And I think that's that's how it's that's how it's done. Yeah, that's how it's always been done in the civil rights movement up till now. Who defines the leader, the, the people that are looking to the leader or the leader, him, him or herself? Well, again, I think that's something we have to um, think about in a different kind of way than we have before. Correct. Because if we're just waiting for the next Malcolm X and the next Martin Luther King, we'll be waiting a long time. It's not, you know, looking for the leader outside as some kind of super iconic figure, but it's really cultivating, looking, identifying people uh, and giving them the support that they need to move forward. So that would mean that we individually create the definition and define what a leader is and what a leader does and how, how he or she behaves. Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, 
you know, finding, you know, finding people that have something that you can connect to if you want to foster Mm -hmm. leadership, for example, finding people who are capable, you, you can identify those people, even Mm -hmm. sometimes at a really young age and, um, and be a support for them. I had a situation years ago when I was, uh, aware of a shelter for women and children in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles. That's a wonderful place called Alexandria house. And I went there with my sons because I wanted them as young men to learn how to nurture at an early age. Mm -hmm. And so we were uh, supposed to be helping the women who had a, a, I guess a discussion meeting going and they they had their children there um, who were just doing games and stuff. So I took my sons with me. And there was a little girl who was five years old at the time, and she was drawing, and she just had a confidence about her. She mm. was quiet, but you know there was something about her that I just really resonated with. And um, her mother was super quiet, but there's something I don't know. There's just something about this little girl that really clicked mm. for me. So I basically exposed her to the same things that my kids were exposed to. So I got her in school my kids went to school in made sure that she went to get swimming lessons and i went to parent teacher conferences with her mom and had birthday parties for her and you know just just share share amazing yeah well you know i was raised in a social work family so i mean that's (laughs) kind of what we did right but um so that's true i mean i did have that kind of you know vision from my own upbringing but but with her, I wasn't looking for that. That was not the outcome. I was thinking. I was thinking. I was thinking they would just, you know, my sons would connect, and that would be it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, the long and the short is, this young woman ended up going to college. She graduated from college two, three years ago. She's now working in Chicago, and um, you know, her life's changed. Wow. And uh, I just did for her what I did for my kids. Just one person. So it's like one, each one take one. Yeah. Right. Each one yeah, take each one. Each one teach one. Yeah. Each one pay it forward. Exactly. Thank you for that too. Also, um, doing that because more of us need to contribute to the lives of others. If we, especially if we're in a position to, um, I think so many of us, we get in position and we stop because this ideology that we have made it and or arrived and I got mine, so you get yours and figure it out. That attitude and mindset needs to change. Yeah. So I appreciate, even though I don't know the girl. <laughs> well, she, you know, she's amazing. I actually just saw her. She was visiting over the weekend, and we had coffee. And we were, I'm still was talking to her. So, oh, you're going to graduate school, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, well, you guys can take start taking the GREs. You know, I was just kind of yes. unfolding that. But again, I have to say, I was just kind of saying offhandedly that I came from a social work family, but actually this. Uh, aspect is something that was definitely, you know, encouraged in my family very mm-hmm. deliberately. So my, so when I was a kid growing up, my mom had kids, my mom was a social worker and we had, you know, kids stay at our house sometimes. Mm. And then my grandfather and grandmother in Kentucky, my grandfather's president of a boarding high school for young black kids in Kentucky. And a lot of them came to this school without a lot. They were rural areas and, you know, whatnot. So they didn't always have food or they didn't have clothing. And my grandmother would go in my uncle's closet, my mom's closet, <laughs> and take out their clothes and give it to them. You wow. know. And if anybody was sick, those kids, my mom, my uncle, and my aunt were going over to take baskets to somebody. Or, I mean, yes. whatever. That was That's just how you did it. And I don't think they were unusual in that sense. I mean, I think that, that because we lived together more so and there was a sense of being a part of community mm-hmm. story i just did on biddy mason here in los angeles is one woman here who became a millionaire but it was very philanthropic right she started right. a slave became you know a millionaire but also part of her journey was understanding that you know helping others was part of her, of her mission yeah. so i think um those are values that we certainly had as african-americans because you know, we had to, you know, be together and win mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And so that sense of respect for other people's lives, again, was very important. But it was raised. It didn't just happen. Yeah. Do you think or believe that um, spirituality is required for us to return to love? 
I think it has, I think it helps, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to have some kind of spirituality that is inclusive, that is um, based in the world that we know already, you know, that is solid in that sense, you know, mm-hmm. and that comports with the reality that we already know to be true, you know. So I think spirituality ha- happens, but can happen. But I think y- you have to be thoughtful about, you know, does it make sense to you? Right. Or whatever. You know, I think, I mean, that's how I approach uh, so what So what would be, to you, what would be the, or is there, it's better, is there something that can get us to love? Um. Yes, I think absolutely, because I think the world is based on uh, creativity and um, life affirmation. Mm-hmm. That's why those penguins are walking that far. You know, they would be walking it otherwise, right. right? Right. So that's an eight in life. And as human beings, we have to honor that aspect of ourselves that are just like those penguins mm-hmm. that is life affirming. And um, so I think, you know, love often is connoted as very romantic. Yes. But I think it, the deeper part of it really does have to do with respect mm-hmm. and, um, you know, honoring the life that's in front Surrendering. of Surrendering. Well, acknowledgement, not so much okay. surrender. Okay. You know, I don't believe in surrendering too much. But no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> but acknowledgement and appreciation it's different it's different you know explain the difference well i'm just saying to me surrendering feels passive it feels like kind of giving it it may not be but that's what it connotes to me okay right okay but i think you know recognition of the beauty of life Uh is really the starting point okay and you know life is giving us clues and examples all the time very true you know the seed that gets planted you know, and you don't see it growing all the time, but if you water it and give it what it needs, this amazing thing happens. And we cannot understand that with our minds alone. There's a limitation with mm-hmm. our comprehension just because the brain is just, you know, it's limited. Right. It's more limited than our life is, right? Our life has passion and power because our, our mind would say, you can't pull that truck up off of your son. Right. Our mind would say, it's impossible. Yeah. Or you can't go to the moon, or you can't go into the water, right? right. But there's the passion of human life is so far beyond our mind's capacity to comprehend. Mm-hmm. We can't comprehend why we why our heart is ticking, right? Really, you know. So, so I think we have to honor this other aspect of what we can see. We, there's this unseen truth mm-hmm. of life, which is like that seed. Capacity. We can't see the oak tree in the acorn, yeah. but it's there, right? right? But what we can do is see if we make the right causes for that acorn, put it in the dirt, give it water, sun, air, that that stimulates the inherent power that mm. the seed has to become the oak tree. Okay. And everything is like that. Music is like that, right? Yes. Everything. How do you categorize music? How do you categorize the smell of a flower? You cannot do it. You cannot do it. And yet we smell, yet we hear, Mm -hmm. right? And we know what makes, what what it takes to do that. We know to get the piano keys and all that stuff. So we understand that this is the nature of all things. It's both mysterious and manifest simultaneously. Right. That's the nature of life. Yeah. Wow. It's powerful. A couple more questions. What makes a leader great and iconic? Um, well, I think a great leader is a person who respects other people, who is uh, humble and appreciative of others, mm-hmm. who always uh, takes the opportunity to appreciate another person. I think that's what makes a great leader. And what about the iconic? You know, iconic is something that I think maybe is a label that other people put on them. I don't mm-hmm. know that they would put themselves. I mean, I don't know any leader would say I'm iconic, right? Of you course know? not. That's but, right. right. So, um, so, you know, I don't know that that's a goal. I don't think that that 
a person who is um, really motivated to just do the work mm -hmm. thinks about things in terms of their legacy. Well, they may not, but would you say that there are there have been some iconic leaders? Absolutely, absolutely. So, but but I mean, I guess. Um, what what makes those leaders to you iconic? Well, here's the thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, this will just get, I'm not sure that being iconic is necessarily a good thing in and of itself. Okay. You know. But they're great too. Well, they're great. But now here's a, here's a, here's something I'll share with you because this did not make it onto the film of the Power Broker, but it was okay. a very interesting point. Okay. So I interviewed Ozzie Davis, mm -hmm. the actor, for this. Uh, story I did on Whitney Young. And um, I asked him, you know, about what would you tell young people? How would you encourage young people in terms of leadership, essentially? And he said, I couldn't tell another, a young person to become another Martin Luther King. And I couldn't tell them to become a Malcolm X mm -hmm. because they were so iconic, because they were larger than life. Mm. He said, I could tell them to become another Whitney Young. And I was really, I was like, really? I was like, okay, but that's, but, but I asked him to explain it. And he was saying, you know, that, that Whitney Young, you know, understood the business world of America. It was mm -hmm. very nut, nuts and bolts. It wasn't, you know, about oration or anything like that particularly, you know, yes. but it was just like really human basic, you know, how to get a job mm -hmm. and, you know, how to. Fundamentals. You know, fundamentals. Fundamentals. You know? And that's what he said. That's the person that he would recommend people follow in terms of finding a, a figure to, you know, role model. Okay. Final Cause, question. Because huh? I think people, can't, you know, if it's too big, people, that's when people think, well, I can't be that. Right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I asked the question not in terms of what we should strive for, but just what attributes makes these great iconic leaders what makes them great and then what makes them iconic mm. you know what are those those elements that exist amongst all of these iconic leaders uh, um, how do we identify them i say well uh thank you for explaining that better so i can understand it more clearly what you what you're looking for um I guess perseverance would be one thing, mm -hmm. the ability to never give up, the ability to, um, I think care about people is very important, uh, to be well-read, to be, you know, really seeking to understand more, to be intelligent in terms of, you know, really trying to pursue more information. Um, I think a certain level of self-discipline is important. Now, the people that we've named iconic are not necessarily those same people. <laughs> so that's why I'm saying it's tricky because, you know, well, but, right. the people, but the people that I admire, that's, that's, is, it's different. It's a little different. So one of the people I admire the most is a man that I worked with for 10 years. Okay. His name was Pastor James M. Lawson. Uh-huh. He is, I wouldn't, I think he would hate to be called iconic, so I don't want to call him. But that. it doesn't matter but, what he but, thinks, but, but it's how you but, see Well, what I would say to him, what I say is that I think he is an example of leadership. Okay. Because he doesn't, he's not looking for, you know, people to notice him. That is not right. where he's coming from. Right. He just wants to do the work. Absolutely. That's what he, that's it. It's what, can, can I do the work? Too? Yes. For him, that is what it's all about. And so I've seen that. So, for example, I mean, he's, he's a very well-regarded, he's a statesman in the civil rights movement, which, mm -hmm. by the way, he doesn't call it the civil rights movement. By the way, he mm. calls it the justice movement. Okay. That's a whole nother topic. But, um, but I have experience with him when he was you know, pastoring a church and leading you know, various organizations and whatever. But when my mother was sick here in Los Angeles, she wasn't from here, but she, I moved her here when she was ill. And um, he never told me. And I learned much later that he visited her every single night when he was in town, when he could. Mm. And during the civil rights movement, the height of the civil rights movement, he was one person for sure 
among ministers who always had a church, who always really, you know, still kept his connection with his congregation in terms of visiting and supporting. It was very under the radar. This is the kind of person he was, mm-hmm. human being. So I, to me, that is a leader. Right. Different than what we often see in the, in the forefront right. outside. And I, I think, personally, most leaders don't label or even identify themselves as leaders. Um, it's oftentimes the people who are looking at these people perform that we see them in motion and in action, we say, oh, wow, that's a leader. They're great. They're iconic. You know, it, yeah, that's a whole top, a different topic because I think it's, it can be very seductive being a leader depending on the situation, mm-hmm. right? So you can, I, I think I've seen people get caught up in adoration from others. Yes. And it's very, it's human nature to yeah. get swayed like that. That ego kicks so in. So it does. And that's real. So I think it's about how to, you know, address that, you know, because that comes because uh, people who live based on that ego alone come to a dead end at a certain yeah, point. Absolutely. And that's the problem, too. Right. Well, yeah, they lose sight of, as you said earlier, the purpose, the mission. Exactly. Yeah. And they're looking for that adoration from mm-hmm. others. And mm-hmm. that, that drives the ego. And it is not about that. So I think the people who become most successful are the ones who really focus on the work. Right. What's the work my, I'm doing? Right. You know, whether it's seen or unseen. Yes. That's what's important. Right. If we have more people doing the work that's mm-hmm. in front of them, then they are the leaders. And that makes us all great and iconic. Exactly. <laughs> I'll agree with you on that. <laughs> Final question. Um, I call this the tabulos. Tabula Rosa question. I just changed the title to that, and it's, so I'm having difficulty saying. <laughs> so you just have to sing it. That's why you sing it. Yeah. Um, I used to call it the blank blank canvas question. Mm-hmm. So imagine, as you are an artist, there's a blank canvas in front of you. You have all the colors that you can ever want or need um, to paint a picture, and you have the opportunity to paint design and architect your life now you've accomplished everything you fulfilled your purpose you've made all the money you've traveled you've uh, inspired people you've done your work going back to this blank canvas what picture do you paint for your life looking back no 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 or looking forward looking right now in the present moment and I mean, what colors do I use or what? Yeah. What colors? What, what, what is the picture? What is the ultimate picture? Mm-hmm. And, and this is, you know, under the assumption you've you've done everything. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have to be concerned with that per se. I think it would look like a Monet painting because that's my favorite image of peace and um, complexity at the same time and depth. Hmm. So it would be, you know, blues and greens and yellows and splashes of pink where the water lilies are. Hmm. I'll show you. I ha- I've actually painted that okay. picture. And what does that picture represent? Not the one that you've painted, but the one that you're talking about on your blanket. Well, yeah, that, that, uh, I think that's my favorite image because it is calming and it's, you know, it's about wa- it's water, which is receiving, you know, it's. Water is everywhere. Yes. And everything. And, um, you know, and, it, and it's comforting, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and it's life affirming. It's kind of got all the elements. Yeah. Well, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you and to salute you for all of your great work, your, um, your research your passion and drive and commitment to community and to people and staying focused on that and having an impact on men, women, and children because it's so vital and we need more examples of people like you. So um, just want to honor you. Thank you. I love you. And um, this has been a pleasure 
having this discussion with you. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. Now, how can people find you, um, find your work? I, I mean, I know you have ton, a ton of things online, but, or know about what you're working on next, if you have any events. Like, so this is a moment for you to put your information out there to the people, if you don't mind. Sure, that's fine. I think probably the easiest way is to go online to Google Bonnie Boswell Reports. When I tell my friends, they ask, what have you been doing? I said, go to see Bonnie <laughs> Boswell Reports, because that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very excited about a uh, event that's coming up soon uh, in Los Angeles. We're having a showing of Boss, which is uh, a documentary that's being produced by Stanley Nelson. And we were given the opportunity to do some local programming around it. Mm -hmm. So I did two pieces on local heroes, entrepreneurs, and uh, one of them is Biddy Mason, uh, who was, again, was this African-American woman, started off as a slave, ended up as a millionaire and as a philanthropist. Uh, That was shown, um, will be shown coming up Mm -hmm. this week. And then after that, Paul Revere Williams, who is an amazing architect, African-American, who did over 3,000 structures, designed them, many homes to the stars in a time of great racial segregation. Mm-hmm. And so they have both life lessons that I think we can really celebrate. I've learned a lot from those. So I think tuning into that um, is great. And, you know, there's, there's more to come. Excellent. Any questions? No, I'm good. No. Thank you again. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Talk about reframing your thoughts. Bonnie hit the nail right on the head when she told the story about her former boss, who she did not care for. He became her biggest advocator. Something so simple as changing how we look at situations can become our biggest stumbling block. Let's begin to shift our views, embrace the struggle, understand the process, take charge, and lead up. And if you know of anyone that could benefit from this episode, please share it. Lastly, if you're in the position to donate, please go to the link at the bottom of the Lead Up podcast description. I thank you and I appreciate you.